Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. I would like to thank Chairman Powell for his testimony today. Without objection, all members have five legislative days within which to submit additional written questions for the witnesses to the chair, which will be forwarded to the chairman for his response. I ask you to please respond as promptly as you're able. Without objection, all members... um, We'll have five legislative days within which to submit extraneous materials to the chair for inclusion in the record. Thank you all, and this hearing is adjourned. All righty, there you see the closing of the uh, House Financial Services Committee chaired by Maxine Waters uh, with Chair Jerome Powell of the Federal Reserve uh, discussing the uh, position uh, on interest rates and the economy generally, wrapping his semi-annual testimony on monetary policy in front of that committee. Powell saying the economy is resilient, steady growth, but he did acknowledge that there are risks from coronavirus. He warned that disruptions in China could spill over to the global economy. On rates, Mr. Powell saying he's content with the current stance of monetary policy unless economic conditions change significantly. He also said the Fed will continue liquidity injections into the markets, but will transition away from the active use of repo. During the testimony, President Trump criticized Powell, which he has done rather repeatedly, tweeting, <clears throat> quote, when Jerome Powell started his testimony today, the Dow was up 125 and heading higher. As he spoke, it drifted steadily downward, as usual, and is now at minus 15. Germany and other countries get paid to borrow money. Uh, We are more prime, but Fed rate is too high, dollar tough on experts. Let's bring in Joe Lavornia, chief economist at Natixis, Kenny Pocari, senior market strategist at Slatestone Wealth, and CNBC economics reporter Steve Leisman is here as well. I'm going to begin with you, Steve, and get you just sort of to sum up what you heard uh, the chair say. He sounded uh, more dovish than not. He said nothing about the expansion is unsustainable. That's a beautiful use of the double negative. I think it means things are pretty good. Um, and he seemed, uh, but no, nowhere did he suggest that we were going to go close to or into negative interest rates. No, uh, I think you have to think about where you were where the chairman was or the Fed policy was before going into this. It was a policy that was on hold. It thinks that current policy in the range of one and a half to one and three quarters is appropriate. Um, To to the extent that they are leaning anyway, they are leaning dovish. And really, I see no change at all in policy from that. He mentioned the coronavirus as a potential risk. Trade's getting a little better. Other risks out there on the global economy. Um, Think of it this way, Tyler. If 90 degrees is straight up neutral, you know, beyond the 45-degree mark is really leaning towards a, uh, towards a cut. I think it's just short of the 45-degree mark. They're leaning towards a cut if things like the coronavirus create broad, sustained downside risk to the economy. He's not ready to make that conclusion yet. Joe? I agree with Steve. Uh, we don't always agree, but uh, I, Steve makes some great points. Uh, 
To me, the reason the Fed probably isn't cutting, though, is the economy's strengthening, in my mind. I mean, the coronavirus certainly is a risk in the short term, and Q1 could be adversely affected. It might be adversely affected more by what's happening with Boeing than it is with the virus. But uh, generally speaking, to me, I'm very bullish on growth and think the economy can do really well, in part because productivity is strong, but also job growth is great. And there's still a lot of labor slack uh, we could get into if you'd like to talk about, but the economy looks to me very healthy, and that's the reason why the Fed probably won't cut. Do you buy into the uh, into the idea that we were discussing yesterday that the United States, both from equities and bonds, has become the safety play globally? Partly, yeah. Uh, uh, well, you see the dollar obviously very strong. I mean, you see rates. I mean, the last year equities are up about 25 percent. Interest rates are down over 100 basis points. The dollar is slightly higher, and it's hard for the dollar to go down if U.S. growth prospects are as good as I'm suggesting. And uh, also the U.S. is perceived as a safe haven, which it has been. Kenny, does and, the, do interest rates need to come down? No, I, no, I don't think they need to come down in quite. In fact, I wasn't in the camp that he needed to make the last cut that he made. I actually thought he should have left them where they were. But that being said, certainly in an election year, I think the last thing the Fed wants to do is appear to be partisan on either side. So I don't think rates are going anywhere. And although he may be leaning dovish, I think you have to leave that door open just in case this coronavirus turns into something much bigger than it is. Um, I I think rates actually stay unchanged all year. You've basically got, don't you, right now, the Chinese economy shut down. If for all intents and purposes, yeah, especially a a, a key part of the supply side of the Chinese economy. Yes. And and the knock, the potential knock-on effect, the worrisome thing out there is, what are the components that China provides us that we Hyundai need can't get parts. to generate Nissan our own can't get GDP? Parts in their um, I, I heard a story factories. that they can't get hockey sticks in the NHL, hmm. which that's a potential real problem, as you might imagine, for yeah. some people anyway. Um, but those are the sorts of things that obviously hockey sticks is, are not the thing that's going to shut down the economy. But there's that piece of it. Joe mentioned the, um, the, the Boeing shutdown. Take the two together. We did a survey over the weekend, Tyler. 1.2% is the going number for a consensus for GDP in the first quarter. That's a weak number. It would appear, without any additional evidence or downside risk, the Fed is going to look straight through it. And they're going to see the other part of the forecast, which is for a rebound in the second quarter, to 2%. Right. The only thing I want to just add, though, I mean, I said the Fed isn't going to cut. That's different from saying the Fed shouldn't cut. Uh, on the growth side and the models the Fed uses, output gaps, neighbor, things of that sort, uh, the Fed won't cut rates because unemployment's going to stay low. However, if you look at the yield curve, the fact that the whole curve is still trading through the midpoint of the funds rate is a problem, and the market's saying the Fed should be cutting. And if the Fed wants to be credible or credibly irresponsible, as I like to say, the Fed should be cutting rates. I don't think they'll do it, though. And you think they I, should stay roughly I, where I, they are. I think, listen, I didn't think they should have made the last cut, never mind make another cut. So I think rates should stay where they are. Yeah, because I think it's like pushing on a string. And I hear what you're saying, but it just doesn't, it just doesn't, lo- it doesn't make sense to me logically. We just need a steep cut. yield curve, though, Kenny. That's the thing. We need a steep yield curve. Yeah. All right, gentlemen, we've got to leave it there. Thanks, Thanks, Kenny. Joe, Steve, appreciate it. All right, we've got a news alert uh, on the airlines and the coronavirus, and Phil LeBeau has that story. Phil? Tyler, you guys were talking about the Chinese economy essentially being shut down, or is it essentially shut down? Well, there's certainly not demand for flights between the U.S. and China. American Airlines now postponing when it plans to resume flights from the U.S. to China, now pushing it back to late April. Previously, it was going to resume flights between Dallas-Fort Worth, its hub, and Hong Kong on February 21st. That's moved to late April. And then you have the flights between L.A. and Hong Kong, as well as all of the other flights to mainland China. They were supposed to 
to resume on March 28th. Uh Uh-uh. Now they're going to resume on April 23rd and April 24th. Not a surprise, Tyler, given the fact that they are seeing extremely depressed demand for flights to China. So they're not going to fly them until they have the demand from people who want to go there. Absolutely. Phil, Phil LeBeau, thank you very much. Phil reporting on the airlines. And here is what else is ahead on The Exchange. Coming up, there's a lot riding on tonight's New Hampshire primary as the Democrats continue to search for leadership, the state of the race, the state of fundraising, and what's at stake. Plus, no signs of slowing down. The staggering new numbers that show the sky is the limit for streamers. And a look at how the shorts were left holding the bag on Tesla. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody, with Iowa finally in the books, or is it really? The focus now turns to New Hampshire in the 2020 presidential race. And Kayla Tausche is live on the ground in Concord, New Hampshire, with what we can expect. Hi, Kayla. Hi, Tyler. In small townships overnight, some surprise write-ins from Mike Bloomberg and a continued surge for Senator Amy Klobuchar. And now we wait for the tallies from the big cities to come in. Polls close in just about six hours. What we've heard on the ground, a lot of progressives doubling down on Senator Bernie Sanders, while moderates are increasingly torn between former Mayor Pete Buttigieg and Klobuchar, who has surged in recent days. The name that didn't come up in any of our conversations, Joe Biden. He's since left New Hampshire to get a head start in South Carolina. But those top three candidates have been commanding extremely large crowds here. Sanders drawing 7,500 last night, but they still pale in comparison to President Trump's rally in Manchester. Capacity at 11,000 seats. Now here in New Hampshire, some 40 percent of voters are independents. And they and a lot of these moderates we've been talking to are on the fence between Klobuchar and Buttigieg. Take, for example, Adria Bagshaw, who runs a fifth generation manufacturer. As of yesterday, she still hadn't made up her mind. I think the economy is strong for certain people, but for the people that we're employing, the people who are trying to make rent, who are trying to pay the bills, the economy is not strong at all. That was a refrain that we heard over and over from voters of all stripes, regardless of who they're voting for. The economy is generally good, unemployment low, but the cost of living is really, really high. Tyler. All right, Kayla, thanks very much. Uh, There is uh, more on the line in New Hampshire than just delegates. Tonight's outcome could also have a huge uh, impact on fundraising momentum. Sources telling CNBC that Mayor Pete Buttigieg is suddenly seeing a surge in support from deep-pocketed executives following his strong showing in the Iowa caucuses. For more, let's bring in Brian Schwartz, political finance reporter for CNBC.com, and Ben White, chief economic correspondent for Politico and a CNBC contributor. So, the money is chasing Mayor Pete? Well, for now, these are a lot of undecided uh, business executives. Former Goldman Sachs executive David Heller, uh, he's starting to surge toward Pete Buttigieg. He's been telling people that he's one of his preferred candidates. He's his preferred candidate uh, going forward, as are dozens of others. 
who are looking at Pete post-Iowa. Is money tilting away from Biden toward Buttigieg? I think in a way it is. I think there's some uncertainty with Joe Biden now, particularly as he falls in the polls. Donors are getting a little skittish. It doesn't mean everyone's abandoning ship right now, but it looks like we're on the brink of that if he cannot pull off success, some form of success, in New Hampshire and then Nevada and South Carolina as we go forward. Let's talk about Biden, and he has pulled out of New Hampshire now. He's gone. He's gone. He's already gone. He didn't even wait till the, till the polls close to go to, to, go to uh, what many are saying is Biden's last stand, right. South Carolina. Right. Last chance saloon for Biden in South Carolina. I think it was a smart move to leave the state tonight and be on the ground in South Carolina tomorrow because his finish tonight in New Hampshire is going to be poor. Uh, question is, how bad is it going to be? Could he fall to fourth? Could he fall to Could fifth? Could he fall to fourth, fourth uh, or fifth? Which, can he sustain another fourth-place finish? Uh, I'm not sure that he can. Uh, certainly he can't if he doesn't win South Carolina. He needs a win under his belt. He needs delegates under his belt. That's why he wants to be there in the morning, uh, you know, on the ground running. There's no sense in being in New Hampshire tonight when you're getting your butt kicked uh, and you've got a lot of unhappy supporters uh, at your party. So and Sanders won uh, fairly strongly, of, as I'm recalling, he last did, time yeah, that's right. in New even, Hampshire. Even more strongly that he's, then he's running today. this time. Exactly. It's, it's not just about like we're talking about here. If Joe Biden is going to lose New Hampshire, there was a, everything in the cards, but he was not going to win New Hampshire. It's right. the way he's going about falling now. It, it was the expectation as the self-proclaimed front runner that he was going to be in the top two or three. Like you just said, fourth or fifth could be a big problem for him going forward from just a you know, donor and a voter perspective. But he is no longer the front runner. That's right. right. I, as you look at these latest numbers, yeah. a Monmouth poll out today has uh, uh, Sanders in uh, with 26, Biden with 16, Warren with 13, Buttigieg with 13. If you look at the real clear politics average, Sanders is 23.8, Biden 19.8, Warren 14, Bloomberg 13. So yeah. he can't even claim to be the front runner anymore he nationally. He's not the front runner nationally. Sanders is the front runner at the moment with Buttigieg really surging and the donor thing is real. I mean, big donors have liked him for a while because right. he's kind of a moderate in the centrist, but cash flowing his way. The question is, you know, is he too young to, to make it happen this time around? Mm -hmm. um, but it's uh, absolutely true that Biden's no longer the front runner. After Sanders, it's kind of wide open between Klobuchar and Bloomberg, I think, is becoming more of a real factor here. I think you're seeing his rising numbers taking away from Joe Biden. Uh, that's a real problem for Biden in Super Tuesday states. If he's losing support to Mike Bloomberg, that could be and the death And yet today, uh, a, a yep. long-forgotten podcast yep. uh, right. uh, surfaced of a, of a speech he gave, Mr. Bloomberg, that yes. is, at an Aspen Institute event uh, some years ago, in which he said some things about minority neighborhoods and the incidence of crime that uh, certainly are not going to endear him to African-Americans or people in, uh, in poorer neighborhoods. Right. I mean, prior to today, prior to, today, prior to that video coming out, he was doing well yeah. uh, with African-American voters. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out going forward. Is somebody like Bernie Sanders going to jump on that tape and use it to try to counter this Bloomberg momentum? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Bloomberg's making his, his way through Super Tuesday states as we speak. So will that be an impact going forward? I'm not entirely sure. But if you're somebody like Bernie Sanders and see Bloomberg yeah. coming out of right. nowhere... That might be a tactic. Just so people are clear on this, I'm going to, I'm going to quote yeah. from this thing. 95% of murders, murderers, and murder victims fit one MO. You can just take a description, Xerox it, and pass it out to all the cops. They are male, minorities, 16 to 25. That's true in New York. That's true in virtually every city. And that's where the real crime is. Um, now, he was using this as a defense of his stop-and-frisk stop right, policy, right. which he has now backpedaled from, uh, some say, 
too little too late, yeah. but, but so it is. This is a real problem for him. Um, stop and frisk was already a problem for him, and he was getting hit on it from the left, from a lot of the progressive candidates. But as Brian said, he was doing well among African Americans, who I think you know, appreciate the business success and see how well he's done. But this is putting words to it, uh, very starkly stating some of these things that you know, maybe were the rationale for the policy, uh, but can be used by rival campaigns to say, look, this guy was fundamentally wrong and fundamentally outside of our values on issues we really care about. I'm so, going to say something that is really kind of crazy, but, but maybe, it, maybe it resonates with you. I think Bernie Sanders, in the sense that he has an extraordinarily strong core, he does. is rather like Donald Trump who has an extraordinarily strong core. Well, you're right. I mean, he kind of galvanizes the base, a la Donald Trump. I mean, that, he has that support. He says things that are kind of out there, right? And he compared to the president. The president does similar things as well. Mm-hmm. And he gets his, mm-hmm. his supporters to come right through and back him. That's why we see, in a way, a surge right now. What yeah, are the, yeah. oh, go ahead. I was going to ask you, sure. you've tied off your thought in just a sec, but what are the odds, if you were to say right now, that the Democratic convention goes to the convention without a clear winner? Yeah, I think the odds are rising and rising significantly, I'd say 25% chance right now, maybe going up from that because it is so bifurcated and delegates could get allotted in some, so many different ways over Super Tuesday in the states that follow. That in, in a we haven't, and we love, to, we, long, we love long. to fantasize about it. Every, every reporter's fantasy, we'll see if we can actually make it happen. Yeah, I mean, again, sure, and, and the, in that type of situation, superdelegates could play a role on the second ballot, not on the first ballot. If it's a straightforward convention, we have the nominee. Second ballot, here come the business guys, maybe deciding who. Good stuff, guys. Thank uh, you. Both, to both of you, Ben, Brian. Appreciate Thank you. it. All righty. Uh, it says Kelly, but Kelly's not here. It's Tyler. Coming up, <laughs> new data out today suggests that when it comes to streaming, viewers are just getting started. So who's got the upper hand in trying to court more eyeballs? Plus, manufacturing mayhem. We follow one company's journey to reopen for a real-world look at just how hard getting back online will be. And a reminder, you can always watch us or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The exchange is back in two minutes. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds. Thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Here are some of the movers this hour. Shares of T-Mobile and Sprint are soaring after a judge ruled in favor of their merger. Now, the ruling clears one of the final hurdles for that deal, which cannot close until the California Public Utilities Commission approves the transaction. The home construction ETF, the ITB, closing in on an all-time high. The move is being led higher by shares of Louisiana Pacific, Beacon Roofing, and Owens Corning. And despite the concerns over the coronavirus, the China large cap ETF FXI 
is on pace for its sixth positive day in seven, shares of Tencent among the biggest winners. Now let's go to Sue Herrera for a CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Ty. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. The defense resting its case in Harvey Weinstein's rape trial, relying on just a few witnesses to testify on his behalf. Weinstein chose not to tell his own story at the risk of having prosecutors grill him on cross-examination. The World Health Organization officially naming the coronavirus COVID-19. This is it convened outside experts to fast-track promising tests, drugs and vaccines to help slow the outbreak of the coronavirus. That virus has killed more than 1,000 people. This outbreak is testing us in many ways. It's a test of political solidarity whether the world can come together to fight a common enemy that does not respect borders or ideologies. It's a test of financial solidarity. And here at home, as per tradition, residents of tiny Dixville Notch in New Hampshire voting first in the New Hampshire primary. Former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg receiving three of the five votes cast. Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg getting the other two. You are up to date. That's the news update. Ty, back to you. Sue, thank you very much. Sue Herrera. All right, thanks. Here's uh, what else is uh, coming up on The Exchange. Ahead, Lyft has gotten a big lift this year, up 23%. Will tonight's earnings keep the momentum rolling? Uber suffers a blow in California. A look at how hard it's becoming for factories to come back online in China. And money versus exercise. A new study has the answer on which one will make you happiest. It's all ahead on Rapid Fire. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. It's time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines, Courtney Reagan, Dom Chu, Rahel Solomon. Welcome to all of you. Glad to have you here. Let's start with Lyft, shall we? The ride-sharing platform said to report its quarterlies after the bell. Investors are going to focus on whether or not Lyft will be able to navigate its way to profitability. Lyft has had a rough ride ever since it hit the market. Shares are still down about 25% since it went public. By comparison, Uber stock is lower by only 8%. Deirdre Boza joins us now with more on Lyft. What should we be looking for, uh, and what, do, what will the commentary likely be, Deirdre? Yeah, so I think that everyone from the ride-sharing companies is just looking for this path to profitability that we've been talking about forever. But now it's really that timeline that markets are focused on. Uber last week moved up its timeline. Will Lyft do the same today? I think what's really interesting, too, is the regulatory impact, not just that they will get to adjusted EBITDA profitability. And remember, that word adjusted is very important. This isn't just EBITDA profitability. They're going to take into account their own metrics, their own costs. And Dara said, Dara Khazar Shahi said last week that his new timeline didn't take into account regulatory changes. Does Lyft see the same thing? Because, of course, guys, they're facing a lot of upheaval and potentially massive existential changes to the platform here in California with that AB5 gig economy bill. Law, rather. Let's knock it around a little bit here. How important, I mean, there are a lot of companies, we're going to talk about one in just a second, a lot of companies have gone public that aren't making money. Here is one that is, is having trouble. How soon do they need to do it before the market is going to exact an even bigger price than it already has? I mean, the signs are, the writing's on the wall, right? The signs are already out there. This idea that there's a paradigm shift within investing 
that puts a, an emphasis on that profitability, or at least showing people that you can get there at some point, some finite amount of time in the future. We've seen IPOs of companies in the past over the last 10 years plus that have come to market because the buzz around them, the business growth prospects were enough to people to say, hey, we don't care about profitability just yet. The issue now is that almost every company that comes public is going to be put under a different lens. And that's not, it's got to be not exactly sitting well with either the company executive private companies or the board members there as well. And the right. revenue growth catches everybody's eyes, right? I mean, that's the thing Absolutely. that people have been focused and on. And that's what we have been for a long time. But as Deep pointed out, Uber, Dara Khashoggi, CEO, said, hey, guess what? We're going to get to that profitability point sooner than what many had expected. And I think that was a pretty big milestone. And I wonder if Lyft, you know, investors are hoping to hear the same thing. And then if they don't, what happens? Are they Let going me ask to be Deidre a, a dumb question, which I know you know the answer to. Why can't or why don't Lyft and Uber make money? Why don't they? What is preventing them? They are in such a fierce battle. There are so many costs. Some of their biggest costs, which doesn't get a ton of attention, is insurance. That is one to certainly look out for tonight when Lyft um, reports, because those costs have been increasing, right? They may not have these costs, such as the cars in their actual balance sheet. However, they have to insure them. They also have to process all of these payments. When their S1s came out, I think that was shocking to some of the public market investors that there were so many costs in this asset light business model. They're also spending a ton on marketing, promotions. Those have scaled back. And I think it's really important here to note that what is adjusted EBITDA profitability mean for the riders it actually means that your cost and they have said this the mm-hmm. cost of your rides and we're already seeing this in California are going to go up so we're the yeah. ones they're going to pay for well, that I, profitability. it feels like we're seeing it in New York as well no I think that's consumer. right I mean you, what is the solution when your costs are as high as they are you, you got to raise, raise prices you raise yeah, or you, so that's exactly or, or you, you stop do. you stop offering those discounts which right. has been an issue and, and maybe they don't out. need to everybody knows what Uber and Lyft are why do they need a bunch of marketing I don't know that you need a lot of marketing when you're when you're already out there. Our dear is going to stay with us because, according to Dow Jones, Airbnb has swung to a loss for the first nine months of last year as costs climbed sharply. The rising costs and losses are raising questions about the valuation and now the timing of its much-anticipated IPO. Profitability, Deirdre, was supposed to be Airbnb's edge. Does this take away from that? I can't imagine that it doesn't. Another dumb question for which I'm yes. famous. and you know what, though? I... We have to make a differentiation here, okay? Airbnb has been EBITDA profitable, not adjusted. It has been EBITDA profitable for the last two years, in 2017 and 2018. This is one quarter. It lost about $320 million. Let's put this into perspective. Uber lost more than $1 billion net losses last quarter. So these are very different business models. We talked about some of the costs here. Those are very different for Airbnb. A source very close to the company tells me that it is still on track for its IPO in 2020. The big question here is how is it going to be received? by public markets will even a little not a little bit because there's still more than 300 million in losses in one quarter but will that throw off investors will that change the valuation view even though it may be still a very different business model than some of the other great Rahel, last funding round on this company was 31 billion in uh, 2017 there is some history here with WeWork uh, and high valuations that are no longer there. Casper, the mattress uh, company, right. same sort of thing. Is the, should we be prepared that this, if this company comes public, that its valuation is going to be a fraction of $31 billion or what? You know, I think there are so many uncertainties. Another thing perhaps spooking investors now is the coronavirus. One investor close to the company, source close to the company, saying that 
China is an important growth area for Airbnb, and they may have to push off their IPO if it does, in fact, happen in 2020 until the coronavirus stabilizes a bit. So it provides a little bit more certainty for this very important geographic region for the company. So I think there are still a lot of questions for this perhaps IPO. That's an angle I, I hadn't thought about. I didn't know how big they were or are in, um, in, chi- in greater China. Dieter, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Great as always to see you. Next, the fallout from the aforementioned coronavirus showing up in several retailers' quarterly results. Under Armour uh, reporting disappointing results this morning. The stock off nearly 19 percent. The company also giving weak guidance, warning that it could lose as much as $60 million in sales from the coronavirus. On the other hand, Hasbro delivered a stellar quarter, yet on the earnings call, the Hasbro CFO Deborah Thomas saying that, quote, it's challenging to quantify the potential magnitude of the virus and that the company is reacting to the situation. These companies join a growing chorus of retailers already uh, citing the coronavirus as a threat to future earnings. Courtney, obviously with Hasbro, it's a manufacturing issue in part. That's right. I suspect it is the same with Under Armour. They must manufacture some in China. Yeah, and on the call, look, they sort of went through, it it can be a supply issue. It can be a logistics issue when it comes to getting goods in and out Mm -hmm. of the country. And that can also be a demand issue for selling to customers in a country where many people are quarantined at home. They're not going to work. And so they tried to quantify it. As you said, it could be 50 to $60 million in a revenue hit in that Asia-Pacific region in the first quarter. They, like Hasbro, though, gave themselves a little bit of room, saying that's what we see right now. Things could change. So I think everyone's having to be a little bit careful about how they're couching it. I do want to make it clear that the shares of Under Armour are under significant pressure today, though, for much more than that. The company is really having a hard time getting itself back on track, uh, particularly when you're looking at their guidance. The street had hoped to see a small gain in revenue in sales for the year. They're now forecasting low single-digit decline. So there's some other issues going on. Coronavirus makes this even further complicated. Thoughts? I would say that the, for the Under Armour, the reason why we've seen as sharp a fall off as we have today mm. is because there has been some growing optimism as of late that they are better positioned to compete against the likes of Adidas globally or Nike globally or elsewhere around the competitive landscape for athletic apparel and leisure wear. The issue now is whether or not they can actually deliver on that. And this is kind of one of those missteps. It almost shows you that investors want Under Armour to be perfect in terms of execution in order to show that they can now compete with Nike and Adidas. And that's the reason why you're seeing this. But I would also point out that with Under Armour, this is very much a hyper-competitive environment where it's it's almost becoming a duopoly in this world. And Under Armour has to fight that much harder to fight against. A duopoly between Adidas and and Nike. And Nike, yes. And and in my my son's uh, group, it is Nike, 100%. Yeah, I think it depends on where you are. I think for Under Armour globally, it's just a really tough space to be in with the coronavirus in China, right? Adidas is saying that they've taken a financial hit. Mm -hmm. I think they've closed like half of their stores in China. We've also heard it from some of the cosmetics makers, L'Oreal, Revlon. L'Oreal saying that they're seeing a financial hit because people aren't shopping in the airports in China because, Mm -hmm. of course, there aren't a lot of flights going to China right now. I think it's a really tough space. But their stocks didn't drop 12% after they said the coronavirus is going to be an issue. Which because there's much more than the coronavirus going on here with Under Last topic, uh, now get this research by Yale and Oxford. There's pretty good pedigrees there. (laughs) Suggested that uh, exercise makes people happier than money. How much happier? According to the study published in The Lancet, physically active people feel just as good as sedentary folks who earn about $25,000 more a year. So I guess that says 
that, is that why exercise is worth no. 25 grand. <laughs> is that why I'm not as happy are as you, you guys happy? are? Oh, is that no. why I'm not as, you guys are all relatively happier than I well, am. Well, so. Elle Woods has been telling us this for years. My Legally Blonde fans, you know yeah. what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, you come out, you feel like it's something that you can control, right? You, you work out a little bit, you're, you're sweating, you're glistening, yeah, so to speak. Yeah. You feel better about everything else and things just seem a little less But also, <laughs> if you live in this area of the country, I feel like you have to be rich to work out. Do you know how expensive gym memberships are in New York City? Yeah. And going you know to these spin classes? Pel- is? I mean, yeah. it, is, it is crazy. So that's why I run, because it's An free. important <laughs> asterisk, right, is that they found that exercise in moderation makes you happier. They also found yeah, the opposite, that people who exercise to an excessive amount are actually unhappier than people who don't exercise at all. So yeah. I think the key is that everything in moderation and balance, including physical exercise, makes you happy. Yoga Ty- makes Ty- you Ty- happy, Ty- right? Ty- how, how much uh, exercise yoga. do you get? Yoga makes uh, you happy, right? I, I do yoga uh, four or five times a week, and I did get a Peloton. Okay. And... And I, and I really like it, but, but I'll tell you the thing that, that is my biggest script. How can these instructors be so happy when I'm so miserable? <laughs> because they're I actors so, as well. And I almost no. put an expletive in there. But, uh, Tyler, it gets better, I promise. It gets you better. You just keep pedaling. No, I do really feel better. better. Honestly, yes. I do feel better. I feel stronger in my legs. But, yes. but they're all relentlessly happy and upbeat and, and uh, 110 cadence. But if someone was going, like, do you want yeah, $25,000 or do you want to work out three times a week? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, guys, thanks very much. Oh, Court, Rahel, Dom, appreciate it. And coming up, you think Americans' appetite for more apps and services to stream content has peaked? New data show otherwise. We have the details on that one next. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. The uh, number, amount of time, excuse me, Americans spend watching content on their smartphones or the web is not slowing down, and it is actually quite the opposite. Julia Borston is live in Los Angeles with the details. Hi, Julia. Tyler, we are consuming far more content than ever before. In fact, American adults spend nearly 12 hours a day connected to media. That's as of the third quarter. Now, that's an hour and a half more per day than the year earlier quarter. So the big question is, what are people doing when they're connected to media? Live TV has actually declined by 17 minutes to just less than three and a half hours a day, according to this new report from Nielsen. The growth, though, is in the time spent on smartphones. Time spent using an app or the web, nearly an additional hour and a half from the prior year. Now, Nielsen reports that just 19 percent of all video viewing on TVs is happening on streaming, but that's up from 10 percent a year and a half earlier. And of that streaming time, Netflix is in the lead with about a third of it. Now, these new numbers from Nielsen comes as the information reports that YouTube is looking to take more steps to be the base of consumers streaming video bundles, is looking at the idea of giving people the ability to sign up through YouTube for a wide range of additional video apps. I reached out to YouTube. They had no comment, but it makes sense that they would want to grow their business in that arena as well. Yeah, absolutely. You're going to stick around, Julie, as we bring in CNBC.com's technology editor, Steve Kovacs. Steve, you you have looked into this YouTube issue, and what they want to do is be the gateway, I suppose, to all kinds of other streaming services and channels exactly. for, for a fee. Yeah, it, it's the return of the bundle, if you think about it. Apple started doing this last year where you can kind of pick a la carte what I want, what channel I want to want. The benefit is, hey, if I'm done with Succession Season 2, I can cancel HBO without a contract or anything like that, don't have to worry about it, and sign up again when Season 3 starts. But if you bundle it all together and you add it all up, 
for Apple's in Apple's case, for example, it's like a hundred bucks a month anyway. So it's it's approaching that cable bundle pricing already. So YouTube is seeming to take a page out of Apple's book. Amazon does it too on Prime Video. Um, this idea is everyone's trying to create this new bundle. Who can become the next streaming cable service? I guess the idea here, Julia, or the appeal uh, is that I am creating my own custom bundle as opposed to a bundle that has been curated, to use the very polite, effete word of the hour, uh, for me by a cable or another provider, right? Exactly. And I think, uh, you know, Steve just mentioned both Apple and Amazon. But what Amazon did with Amazon channels was really the, a big first in sort of kicking off this business because Amazon now offers 200 different streaming video services. They call them channels because they want people to think of it as just another channel that they're going to watch through Amazon Prime Video. And there's a huge amount of money to be made here by these platforms, because if you subscribe through an Amazon or an Apple or, in fact, a YouTube you would be paying a fee or, or part of your subscription fee would go to that platform. So they would generate revenue from that. And they also would have the added benefit of you wanting to go there as a place you'd go to find all your content. So Amazon wants me to subscribe to Showtime um, and all my and, and HBO through them. H, uh, you could understand why YouTube would want to do the same thing, because there really is a big advantage to people saying this is going to be my main platform, my home screen, if you will, for where I find all my streaming video content. All right, Julia, thank you very much. We have to leave it there, yep. Steve. Thanks. We have some uh, breaking news, a news alert now out, out of the FTC. And Elon Moy has the details. Hi, Elon. Tyler, the FTC has sent notices to five of the big tech companies seeking information about small acquisitions over the past decade that were not previously reported to regulators. Now, these special orders essentially carry the weight of a subpoena, and they were sent to Amazon, Alphabet, Apple, Facebook, and Microsoft. Now, currently, companies are generally required to report deals valued at over $90 million, but the FTC said that it is worried that tech companies could make anti-competitive acquisitions or of a potential or nascent competitors. Some people are calling that stealth consolidation. Now, the FTC wants documents on the company's acquisition strategy, voting and board appointment agreements, non-compete clauses, and how product development, pricing, and data were handled after the deals were closed. Now, this is not a law enforcement action. It is a study. But FTC Chairman Joseph Simons told reporters in a call just a few minutes ago that it could inform their enforcement decisions. And he said that if the FTC finds something problematic, all options are on the table. Back over to you, Tyler. All right, Elon, thank you very much. Elon Moy in Washington for us. Coming up, from the latest coronavirus numbers to the stories behind it, we check in with one business owner who had hoped to reopen his factory today. But the Chinese government had other plans. That story is next. Back to the exchange, everybody. The uh, number of coronavirus cases keeps climbing with more than 43,000 now worldwide, including 13 here in the United States. The number of deaths now stands at 1,016. And with many factories across China still shut down, the disruption to businesses and supply chains goes on and on. Eunice Yun spoke with one business person whose motorcycle factory on the outskirts of Beijing was just ordered to stay closed a little longer. Hi, Tyler. Well, the continued spread of the virus has stalled production lines across China. And we spent the day with one Beijing manufacturer who's concerned that the disruption to the supply chain could last till April. 
Sebastian Krobok expected to reopen his Beijing motorcycle factory today. Instead, it's 10 in the morning, and he's at home with his dog. It's nice to be at home, but this is too long. Like most businessmen in China, Krobok was planning to start production after the Lunar New Year holiday. But because of the spreading coronavirus, he's stuck trying to manage his company Evoke from his apartment. Krobok has depended on the thousands of workers at this facility to build his motorcycles for the past two years. From here, the bikes are shipped all over the world, including to the U.S. The authorities here have imposed new prevention measures that companies have to meet, like installing showers, isolation rooms, and appointing staff to monitor workers' health. You have to have it or you don't open the door. That's pretty much how it is. He's not sure when that will happen. Chinese workforce is a migrant workforce. And majority of that workforce comes from the places like Wuhan, Hubei, uh, Harbin, and so forth. And those guys won't get here at least for uh, until the end of the month. In the meantime, he and his partners had to delay the launch of a new motorcycle they had planned for this month. When do you think you're going to reopen? Fingers crossed Friday, but you never know. The virus is now affecting Chobrook's business planning. He said that he and his partners already have a facility in India, but they're now considering shifting senior staff to India and accelerating their plans there. Tyler? Eunice, thank you very much. There are a few companies that have announced in the last 24 hours that they will open their facilities. Caterpillar reopening most of its Chinese operations. The company saying they follow, continue to follow government direction on the remaining openings. Honda telling investors it aims to restart car and component production at most of its Chinese plants on Monday. It added that some of its workers have returned at five of its plants to take steps to ensure the safety of employees uh, in order to resume work. Mercedes has restarted its China production, but says it is still assessing the impact of the virus. Coming up, I got my butt kicked. That's how one Tesla short seller described the stock's enormous rally. But just wait until you hear how much money short sellers have lost since that big Tesla rally began. We will tell you coming up. Deeper data at CNBC. Total U.S. mortgage debt stood at $9.56 trillion at the end of 2019, a $433 billion increase from a year prior, as mortgage volume hit a 14-year high. Bearish investors and short sellers lost $8.4 billion as shares of Tesla more than doubled over the first five weeks of the year. Since then, the stock has fallen about 20 percent from its peak, but some are still feeling the short squeeze and may be feeling it for quite some time. For more, I'm joined by Greg Zuckerman, author of The Man Who Solved the Market. He's a special writer for The Wall Street Journal. Greg, what, how much pain are these uh, short sellers in? It's pretty deep, uh, and it's spread. It's the big investors, guys like David Einhorn, Steve Eisman, hedge fund-type traders, but individuals, too. We spoke to a bunch of them who have been skeptical for a long time. Some are throwing in the towel. Others say, hey, at you know $750 a share, it's even more of a short. I haven't seen anything like this, the sort of showdown, a battle over a single stock in a generation, maybe. Uh, at least 10 years for some sure. of the some of the uh, some of the gr- big short sellers that you just mentioned, like Einhorn, Eisman, uh, I suppose, Jim Chanos uh, and others are known for one. Uh, they're known for many things. But one thing they're known for is the ability to endure pain. Right. 
Yes, some can handle it. A guy like Dimchenos uh, says it's about 2% of his firm's uh, assets, their positions. I spoke to him. He's either a really good uh, poker player or he sounded pretty calm and confident in his position. And he wasn't really talking about adding to it, but he didn't seem like it was ending at any time soon. But many even bigger investors aren't in a position where they can hold it forever. And that's the thing about being a short seller. It's really difficult. And as the stock goes up, you feel pressure. And some of the reason why it's been going up is these guys closing out their positions and you get a, a short squeeze. That's not the only reason, but it's part of it. This is, a, this is a stock that is volatile. It is a, a heavily traded stock, $55 billion worth of shares uh, traded on Tuesday of last week alone. There was a time to short this stock about a year ago, right? Yes, and there were reasons to think that the stock was going much uh, farther lower. I mean, listen, you can make all kinds of bearish arguments. The stock, uh, the company isn't known for its profits. It's in a really competitive business. This isn't like Amazon back in the day when it wasn't making any money, but it had aspirations and it had interesting plans. You can make the argument that people like BMW and Porsche are coming out with uh, electric vehicles that are equally attractive to Tesla, and the bulls would, will counter all that by saying Elon Musk is unlike any other executive. He's proved it over the past couple of years. He's got ambitions and he's got... Uh, the track record, at least the last uh, six months or so, where he's been uh, improving their production. They've got a, a crossover coming. So you can make the bull argument. Yeah, I suppose. So. And very quickly, uh, he loves trolling the uh, shorts, doesn't he? Very quickly. Right. Uh, unlike any executive we can uh, recall in the last few years, he baits them, he trolls them. He's talked about how shorts should be outlawed. Um, it's been part of the game. It's part of the right. story is the short sellers. All right. Greg Zuckerman, The Wall Street Journal. Thank you. And that does it, sure. folks, for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>